Hello, you're listening to Script Lock, where we talk about storytelling in video games. I'm Nick Folkman. And I'm Max Folkman. Today's guests are Emily Poissonneau and Brie Code, returning from our first episode. Emily is currently the co-director of Burning Glass Creative, and her credits include leading the design team on The Sims Freeplay at EA Melbourne and on Drakensong at Big Point Games. She was also the game design director at Freema Studio and taught storytelling and games at a college in Quebec that I will not even try to pronounce. <laughs> Brie formerly worked at Ubisoft Montreal, where she was the A-lead programmer on the Assassin's Creed franchise, as well as Child of Light, and since then has founded True Love Media with the goal of making games with people who don't like video games. Thanks for coming on the show, you two. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we'll start with Emily, since Brie, we've already done our intro questions with you last time. Uh, Emily, how'd you break into games? Um, I've, I've always been interested in art in general. Um, when I was five and a half, I was reenacting Disney movies in the backyard. Um, so my mom sent me to acting school. I did that for about 10 years. I was also interested in writing and telling stories. Um, so in college, I ended up going and studying cinema. And through my studies, it dawned on me that they were teaching me to be a critic more than a creator, and that didn't quite gel with what I wanted to do. So I ended up working odd jobs here and there, trying to figure out what art form I wanted to express myself in, and one that I would have a good shot at, because at the time, the film industry in Quebec City in Canada wasn't nearly as big as today. And I ended up working as kind of a secretary type job and then Ubisoft opened a position for that and I was like oh that's something that I could do Ooh, I could work in games I've been playing games all my life I wonder if I'm in Ubisoft can I learn and then transfer to something else so I went to the interview and asked those questions and the HR people were like actually they just opened a brand new class at a local college for game design so I ended up not getting the job and going and taking that class, which was a 13-month intensive game design class taught by industry professionals. It was really intense. And then on the other side, I ended up doing my internship at Ubisoft in game design and just went from there. What did they teach at the class? They taught us the basics of game design and how game production works, um, and also then more in-depth game mechanics, um, interactive storytelling, and it dipped into 3D art, some coding, um, so that we have, we'd have a good understanding of what the other disciplines are doing, because at the end of the day, a game designer needs these people in order to pull together a game and lift it off the set of bullet points on the page and make it something. Did you feel like I prepared you for the industry? Yeah, I think it was it was really good. It didn't give me as much high-level theory as current uni classes are doing. It was very, very practical, and it was taught from people who learned from doing it. So it prepared me for my immediate work, um, but then I felt the need to investigate the theory and learn a little bit more and question a little bit more what I was doing. What kind of high-level theory did you want to see? Or would you have liked to have seen? Um, it's kind of the classic theories of fun, um, 
player behavior and player psychology, all of those aspects that tie into the decisions we need to make to deliver the best possible experience. To be fair, there wasn't that much theory available at the time. Um, game design as an academic study is still fairly new. But yeah, that's kind of the, the bits that I felt gave more depth and purpose to the decisions I was making. Okay. And uh, what's your writing process like? I'm, I'm someone who likes to plan, but in a very loose way. So usually I'll start with a high-level brainstorm and anything goes really at that stage. I'm just going to experiment with the story that I want to tell. And most of my stories start for, from a character, um, if not all of them. I think that may be tied to my acting background. I just can't find my way into a plot without a clear character in mind. So I brainstorm around how I can mess up their lives, essentially, <laughs> and what could be interesting things for them, and how would that relate to the person consuming the story, whether it's through a game or prose. And from there, I extract a bullet point list of the main things that are important to me um, and start putting it in a, a sequence on post-its post that go up on the wall. And I keep those post-its really light so that I don't get too emotionally attached to their content, which helps me have an idea of where I want to end with my story but also gives me flexibility to play with it as I'm writing and figuring out the small bits and pieces. Because it, it's no effort at all to take a post-it off the wall and replace it with something else or switch the order around. Why is getting emotionally attached a problem? I guess, in my mind, I don't want to limit myself to the first idea that I had. So I... I like to be able to follow the story where it goes and allow characters to surprise me. And I don't want that to be a struggle between what I thought was originally a good idea and what now seems like the right idea. So I guess that's why I want to make it as easy for me as possible to change my mind um, <laughs> or, or tackle things because I think that's the best way to, to do the right thing for the story. Yeah. How do you sort the, the stories that you come up with into ones being more appropriate for video games or prose or something else? Um, sometimes I kind of just know from the start. And sometimes I write songs as well. So it kind of pops in my brain with a distinctive voice. That can be adapted. That can be molded to different things. But there are some experiences that I really want to deliver through the unique interaction of a game um, and, and make people feel that experience and play with it and explore different facets of it. Whereas if I was doing it in prose, I would have to pick one facet and tell that story a little bit more. Um, yeah. And to move on to Breed now, what have you been up to since we last had you on over a year ago? Yeah, so uh, about a year and a half ago, I, where I met Emily was at GCAP in Australia at the end of October in 2015. Um, on that trip, I came up with my plan for going forward, and I started my company, and I started traveling. And I've been traveling um, all around the world. Basically, I had no, well, 
I had a plan to travel, but I didn't follow a plan while I was traveling. I just went everywhere that I was invited. So I w- like followed a very strange path, like back and forth between um, North Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and America, and Australia, and Malaysia. And while I was traveling, I'm getting to know different games communities around the world, meeting a lot of young people who are starting their own studios, and also working remotely with my team in Montreal. I don't know how much you could talk about with your your company, though. Um, so I, I started my company because I wanted to make games that are different than um, the opportunities I had at places I was working. Um, I mean, did I talk about my cousin and Skyrim when I was last year? I know you talked about Skyrim at some point, but I know it was related to that. Basically, I had this big realization um, near the last few months of my time at Ubisoft where um, my cousin, who's my best friend, her name's Christina, she doesn't like video games, and she's never, like, she, she really doesn't like video games. She's an art historian. She thinks they're, like, not a valid media, like, culturally relevant. She doesn't support my career, and then... Um, at some point, she got a PS3, and she was like, well, is there something I should check out? And I started to give her games to play, and she started to get a little bit intrigued, even. Um, and I convinced her to play Skyrim. I didn't think she actually would. And she, like, after I told her to play it, she didn't call me back for quite a long time. I think three weeks went by, and I just assumed she wasn't playing it, because she usually gave me feedback on the games I recommended right away. And then um, three weeks later... My phone rang one evening, and um, no one ever phones me because I don't like talking on the phone. I usually like texting. And then when I saw her number, I thought there was, like, an emergency. And I answered, and she was crying, and she said that Lydia died. And she was talking about Skyrim. (laughs) And talking to her that evening about her experiences in that game, and she was saying that it wasn't that she didn't like video games. It's that she didn't know what video games were because she always saw video games as like this kind of low culture, tied to geek culture, which she's not interested in, and being a lot about like fighting and about adrenaline. And she liked Skyrim because she liked Lydia, and she liked doing quests for the other characters, and she liked taking Lydia with her. And so I started to do research about potential other forms of gameplay built on this kind of thinking, and can we make games that aren't kind of built on this kind of frustration adrenaline loop um and so that's when i started my company and since you started your company have you learned anything more about development or the people who don't play games or want to play games yes like so i decided like that the best way to discover what people who don't like games want is to work with them so I started six projects. Each of them is co-designed with someone who doesn't like video games from a different creative industry. Um, each of the games is quite different from each other. Um, and then I kind of... One of them seemed to have a lot of potential, and we focused our efforts more on that one now. We'll ship that one first um, in the next few months, I hope, depending on how focused I am. But... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to talk more about that yet. One of my GDC talks is a bit about it. Okay. Yeah. So we'll put a link to it eventually and edit this podcast when okay. it's out. I want to switch gears a little bit and do a question for both Bree and Emily. Emily, you've had a few leadership roles over your career, and Bree, you're leading company right now. 
how do you navigate the push and pull of business and marketing and their effect on development, especially the creative aspects of development? I think because I run a small business, um, my goal is innovation and to find like new kinds of games that are different than what the market is already asking for. If you already make games and your company has a successful product and you want to you know, reach that market better, it's good to work with marketing and to work with your community and make that product better and better and better. And you're going to like kind of move towards the best version of your product. But if you listening, if, if you listen to marketing right from the beginning, you're always going to be moving towards the best version of a known product. And you're never going to find something that's like out there that's brand new that people don't know they want yet because it doesn't exist yet. Um, so in that case, you need to like build something that's from the heart and that will resonate with people, but that's new. So I'm not interested in working with marketing at all. I think if, if you're developing an, ex an existing space, you need marketing in order to differentiate yourself like in a saturated market. But if you're trying to make something that's very new and different and satisfies players' needs in a new way, then you don't want to deal with marketing at all and the product should market itself. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said in, in the challenge of marketing kind of always pulling you towards the known because it's easier to evaluate how a product is going to perform if you can compare it with something that's existing. So one of the, the challenges that I faced when I was director of a pitch department is I was sitting between making a game that the team believed in and also making presenting that game in a way that people would give us money to make. So it's this interesting push and pull of, of trying to make people realize that this is something that they don't know they want, but will be successful, and using language of things that they know in order to present that, and, and finding that in between was a lot of the challenges um, that we were facing. And marketing would influence the design decisions that we, we were making because of the reality of how we needed to make these games. Nowadays, uh, running Burning Glass Creative and with my business partner, Brooke, we're looking a lot at who do we want to be? And like, like Brie mentioned, figuring out the heart of what we want to do and making sure that that's strong and that's going to speak for itself. Can you give an example of <coughs> pitching to someone something that they don't realize that they want? You kind of have to be sneaky about it um, in, in the context that I was doing it. So um, I was working with um, entertainment companies like Nickelodeon, Disney, Hasbro, um, and they wanted games to tie into their toys or TV shows and, and things like that. And um, oftentimes had ideas of what they wanted um, and reference points from current games that were doing really well on the platform they were targeting and trying to, to find things that, the exact things that worked in the project that they were talking about, but also twist them and make, em, make them what the property they were using actually needed to work. And it's, it's about using common grounds to make those things uh, understandable, I guess. Because if it's something that they don't know they want, sometimes it's because 
Um, it's not well understood or it's not well defined and things that you don't understand are scary. Um, so building those bridges in communication and in, in the ideas and in the concepts were really important um, in my particular situation. And you mentioned your pitch team. Could you explain what did you do as a design director of a pitch team? Like what goes into that? Yeah. Um, so I was working for a company that was doing mostly work for higher contracts for entertainment, uh, American entertainment industry. So we had a small dedicated team working with the business development managers um, and our purpose was to come up with high-level concepts for games um, based on requests for proposals coming from our potential clients. And we would usually have a turnaround time of five days to a couple of weeks um, to come up with a pitch document, which would be five to ten pages at a very high level what that game was going to be. And it needed to be precise enough so that the development team could evaluate how much work would go into it and convincing for the client so that they would agree to go with us for the contract. And a lot of that process to me was like telling a story. From the get-go of the pitch, um, we needed to set the scene and pose an interesting question um, and then explain it and go through it in a way that was engaging and motivating and seamless and not create too many confusing questions in there, but sell this strong adventure for a player that would be something that worked for the client. So it was a really interesting meeting ground between marketing, game design, narrative to, to make those projects work. What kind of stuff would the client give you in the beginning? Yeah, it would depend on the client. Um, so some of them would have very specific, we want a game with SpongeBob that goes on our website and needs to do these things. Um, and sometimes we'd have broad hidden objects are working really well right now. We have this budget. What type of game could we make? So it, it varied a lot in part depending on the experience the client had with games um, and their personal goals for the, for the project. We also had uh, interesting projects that weren't as gamey. So one of the games that Freema Studio produced um, back when I was there was a Facebook game called Half the Sky based on the book of the same title, which is about women's situation around the world and in female empowerment and the difficulties in developing world and all of that. And the goal of that game was to generate awareness and um, donations as well for those causes. So that was a bit, the, the subject matter was really well defined, but how that would translate to a game experience was completely up to us. So switching topics. We found out about you because Bree had seen your talk at GCAP on modular narratives. Could you talk to us about your work with modular narratives and what was your talk about? <laughs> um, so the, the discussion of modular narratives actually happened um, when we met at GCAP, but around Gyoza um, dinner <laughs> after GCAP. Um, and we 
we just got into what narratives could do. If memory serves, Brie, you were looking at building like AI and code and how that relates to narrative, correct? Yes, yes. And I just got into this whole concept that was um, that I read about in Character Development and Storytelling for Games by Lee Sheldon, which is the idea of building a story that can be experienced in any order, um, has a set beginning and a set end, but the pieces in between can move. Um, and the meaning of it is partially left to the player's interpretation of the story and putting bits and pieces in there to reinforce their interpretation based on the path that they've done so far, but giving them freedom a little bit. Um, which for someone who's writing mostly linear stories um, is, is a very challenging concept because you have to let go of a lot of things that you consider you need to have control over in order for a story to work. So what I like about modular storytelling is that it, it merges game systems and narrative. Um, when I first started in games, story was perceived as at odds with gameplay. The resources you needed to tell a story and the resources you need to tell to to create gameplay um, clashed and that was kind of a battle and some people thought that stories didn't belo belong in games because gameplay stood on its own and the other school of thought was that story definitely belonged in there and that giving player choices in particular would cause stories to blow up but with modular storytelling because of its structure players would see everything. They would just see it in a different order and interpret it differently. But that was up to them more than us creating additional content. And at this, at this stage, um, we've had some modular story telly, uh, storytelling in television and in games like um, 80 Days, Sunless Sea, where... In Sunless Sea, different islands have completely different stories and they're independent and you can experience them in any way, in any order. And it's going to give you a sense of the world and a sense of the themes. Um, and you're kind of going to build your understanding of the world as you explore it. And I think I remember the developers saying that they made these, this story structure choice because it made their lives easier in a way. When you can't predict how big the game is going to be, it gives you flexibility to put in pieces or take pieces off. Um, if you have contractors, it, it gives them something to own without having to do a lot of research on everything else in your game. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that we're say, seeing that is existing. But for me, that's one half of modular storytelling, the idea of bits and pieces you can see in any order. The other half is the idea that the game systems are tracking what the player has done and doing small modifications within the modules as they experience them to reinforce their experience of the world. And in, in big games like Mass Effect, Dragon Age Inquisition, The Witcher, there's more and more of those systems tracking player choices and offering different branches of the story. The way they're built means that uh, in some cases, 
the player, because they made a choice, won't see a part of the game at all, which is a lot of work that is not going to be part of their experience. So I'm curious to see when these two concepts are going to start merging together so that I can experience independent, vastly independent modules that are going to be slightly reinforced with the modules I've seen before by tweaking a dialogue here, tweaking some events here and there, and then there's no lost work and it's a cohesive and strong experience. But the linearity of it and the unique story of it is mostly in my mind as the player as opposed to controlled by the game. Were you going to say something, Brie? Oh, I just, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything I want games to do. It would be so, so great, um, I think, because the unique power of game is that agency and that I, me as a player, get to make my own director's cut. I, I get to make my own story in a way that resonates with my choices. And the stronger the story we can tell, that also allows all of that to happen just opens up a world of experiences that I'm really keen to see. Do you think modular will become the norm for games with stories in them? I don't know. I'm hoping, because I think there's a lot of, of potential there, and I'm curious to see what would happen. I do think there's a place for linear stories as well. There are some wonderful games out there that just carry you through an awesome story but yeah, I think there's place for modular storytelling, and I think it may be one of the keys to really define the unique storytelling language of games. Um, the same way editing defined storytelling in cinema. Yeah. Brie, do you agree? Or? Yes. But I bet like, that would be... like I can talk about it from a, a game design standpoint and a, a problem that I'd like to solve... Um, from a coding standpoint, when you were thinking about like building an AI for narrative, I bet there's a bunch of challenges in there. I think, I think it's not that challenging. I think it's pretty clear. Um, I think that there's a lot of work to be done, and I think it's not a priority in the industry because it's not something that stimulates the sensibilities of the average gamer. But I think if you look at player motivation across large population like across all of people instead of the kind of people that tend to play and make video games now that it would be um, very um, rewarding and obvious thing to put resources on to develop but I like I think there's a lot of work to be done but I don't think it's more complicated than the kind of graphics that we have so it really is more of a business thing that we're asking more modulators just I think it's I think it's more of a, a side effect of um, what, like, who were early game developers and what they were interested in, and then who played those games with people who have similar interests and similar tastes, um, and then they come to work in the games industry, and there's sort of a closed loop of what's what kind of things that game developers and gamers are interested in versus what all people would be interested in. I think it may be as well the experience of writers in the industry because even accepting narrative as part of games development is fairly new and having 
you know, writers coming from film and and more linear media, there's a there's a learning curve, right? Um, of of trying to make all of this work, um, understanding the strength of the medium, and then starting to change it and and make new things out of it. And it's been moving really fast in recent years. Um, so I feel like that maybe the other bit of the puzzle as well is mm -hmm. figuring out how to make that work. And I was really happy when I first heard that narrative designer was a role that exists. Because um, when I started, it wasn't. And to me, that's one of those important things is bridging that gap between the story and the game and having that key role figure out how to, how to solve those problems. Ideally, every writer is a narrative designer because what they do affects game design in some way. Yeah, and it's, it makes such a difference as well working with, some, with someone who has an interest in, in game design. When I worked on Drakensang, the narrative designer that we had was really involved in, in content design and coming up with ideas because she had such a great understanding of the world and what she wanted to build out of it. She would come up with, with conflicts that would turn into game mechanics that would be fun for players and it really works together to create both the context and the interactions within that context in a cohesive whole. And Bree, what you were saying with why modular narratives <coughs> aren't showing up more right now is how we solve that through bringing in different people, like doing what you're doing with getting people who don't play games into the Oh, I just think that like it hasn't been the, you know, the whole way that games have developed and what priorities we put on what kind of features and then what production processes we've developed around that is not geared towards this. So in order to work in a different way, I mean, it, it requires a lot of changes that are very risky and very expensive to make due to the legacy that's already in place. Okay. Um, that's why I started a small company making small things where we can make a lot of mistakes and try things and, and not have to like take a like a huge risk with a team of hundreds of people like because it, it's really a production risk like like if your process is 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 a certain way and if you want to change the very way that you structure the game then you have to change your process and that's inherently very very risky so modular narratives can be done with a small team because yes knowing nothing knowing very little about programming it, hearing you talk about it a lot sounds it makes it sound daunting and maybe that's something that only a big team can do no okay no no. In fact, I mean, it exactly, it, it does need um, probably one or two programmers who have the vision of the system, and then you need writers who are both creative and can see things in terms of systems and can understand that a scene is something with some, maybe some abstract roles to fill yeah. with preconditions and postconditions, things that change in the world after that scene plays out, um, and can structure their creativity accordingly. Were you going to say something, Emily? Um, yeah, I agree with, with everything that Bria said. And I was also thinking that what we're expecting from games um, is evolving over time. So when I, when I first started playing games, um, I wasn't counting on games to fulfill my narrative fix. I would read books. I would watch movies. That's where I would find stories. Um, I played games for the interactivity to puzzle solving. But 
with more people playing games, the audience changing, the medium maturing, then we start to expect more from the stories that game tell. And from people like Bree's cousin, who suddenly realize what you know games can do, that creates pressure to deliver more, more of those experiences. And I think that's going to help justify putting development costs against it now that it's something that we can do and that more people um, are asking for it. What do you expect out of games, Brie? For me personally? Yeah. I like characters. I like, I like creating my own character, customizing it. I like customizing my environment. And then I like interacting with characters and getting to know them and, and like taking care of them and them taking care of me. And what do you expect, Emily? I, I like to be challenged in a way. Um, I do like sometimes creating my own character and, and doing my own thing. But I also enjoy playing games that make me question myself. So games like Papers, Please or Orwell that put me in control of other people's life and make, and make me feel really icky about it and make me wonder what would I do in this type of situation? What type of person would I be? Where is the morality of what I'm doing? Am I comfortable with this? Why not? Uh, and, and kind of has an impact on me outside of the game that I'm playing. Yeah. Do both of you, do you feel like your expectations are more or less met? More, more often or less often met? Uh, for me, not met at all. Yeah, for me, it's, it's really going to depend. Um, it's kind of like going to the cinema and going to see a movie. I, I set up my expectations of what I'm going to see before I get started. So if I'm going to see a superhero movie, I'm going to the cinema because I want to see the special effects in big colors. And that expectation is going to be met. So... It's kind of what happens with games as well. There are some games that I start and I'm like, I am expecting to do these things in this and that's going to be fine. But the things that really stay with me from playing a game, um, what I was talking about earlier, things that are going to make me question myself, I have to look really hard to find those. And there are more and more of them coming out from indie studios that are happy to take risks with the stories they want to tell and the themes they want to tackle. But I think there's still a lot of room to grow. My favorite game from the last few years, and it's, it's not the kind of game I'm looking for, not the kind of game that I'm working on, but of the games that are out there, it's my favorite. And it's this war of mine. And it's because of this, well, because of many reasons, actually, I love that game. But um, there was this moment where like one of the first times I was playing and I didn't know the systems yet and I broke into someone's house and they had tons of food and food was scarce and so I took all of it. And when I went back to my house, all of my housemates were like, I can't believe you took all their food, like they're going to starve because of you. And I snuck back the next night and put the food back. And then the game didn't recognize that I put the food back and I felt that was like a lost opportunity. But like that was a really powerful moment. Like I felt so bad. Could you explain what the game is about for people who don't know about oh, it? Oh, yeah. So you should play it. It's like you have kind of a dollhouse of people that you're controlling. Um, you have a side view of the house, and it's set um, in the siege of Sarajevo. So, like, 
you're basically trapped in this city that's under siege, resources are scarce, you have these people that have like come together to try to survive in this house, and so every day during the day you like do like maintenance on your house, like like patching holes so that people can't like break in and steal your your stuff, and then um, at night you go out and you like scrounge around for resources, for like food and stuff. How depressed does that game make you? Because it. Well, That's so like maybe maybe Emily is similar because of what she's saying, but like what makes me depressed is games where like everything is happy and cute because the world is not like that and I'm not like that. And a game that's like super depressing like that, that's, it makes like, I just think it's, that's what life is. So it's not depressing to me. Like, yeah. I like it. It's very cathartic for me, that type of, of game that, that makes me go through those challenges, which are, yes, reflective of what life actually is like. It's not an easy road, um, but also it's not my life. My life is much easier than that. But being being faced with these realities that may not be mine but teach me something about myself um, is both emotionally engaging, it, it makes me go through this adventure with these fictional people, but it's also something that stays with me and, and uh, make it worth my time in a way by expanding my own horizons. So... I actually seek these out, seek these emotionally engaging, difficult situations and stories uh, because it makes me grow. So I'm still thinking about this. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a cough. Um, this past weekend, um, I just attended a think tank with a group of positive psychologists called I Thrive, and they're interested in integrating the principles of positive psychology into game design. And um, positive psychology is the study of how to complement psychology that's focused on when things go wrong with, with a, an additional component of psychology of how to develop your strengths. So um, they've done research into, develop, like uh, I think there's 24 cross-cultural strengths that people tend to have that they've identified, and you can do, take a test to figure out like what your top five strengths are or whatever. Um, but how can the development of these strengths be tied in to game mechanics? My own research that I'm doing with my company is kind of around um, stress response and that adrenaline and, and fight or flight is not the only response to stress. And the kind of games experiences that you're talking about, like where you seek out experiences where you can grow as a person, um, particularly for you, you're talking about empathy, of putting yourself in someone else's shoes and understanding the choices they would make. I think it, basically you're talking about being attracted to the idea of developing your strengths. And I think that as games move forward, this is a really interesting direction to look at. Yeah, that sounds like like something that has a lot of potential. And I really like, the uh, yeah, you're right, the idea of, of personal growth and working on your strengths and wrapping all of that together, I'm really curious to see what will come out of it. Why don't bigger studios make more emotionally engaging games? Is it because it's too difficult to write or program that? Or are they trying to fall back on what's easier, like predefined, what's sold before? Yeah, I think, I think they're doing it in their own way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Mass Effect or Dragon Age have no emotional components to them. 
it, to me, they're kind of the, the blockbuster version of those stories. And, and as you mentioned, like it's going towards things that people are more accustomed to and are perceived as more far-reaching in terms of audience. I would presume that not everyone wants to play a game about um, child cancer and stuff like that. So it's, it's safe choices in, in that sense. I think there's emotional components to it, but maybe not the depth of what we're talking about here um, or in a different way. Yeah. I think, like, I mean, games, it's such a young medium and we're figuring out what it is and there's games taking many different approaches. Some games are more linear, some games are more systemic, um, some games are interspersing a narrative with, like, these kind of set pieces, like when you look at, a, like, a game like Uncharted... Um, where there's, like, story, and then there's, like, shooting, and then there's, like, story. And I think there's sort of two directions that I'm interested in games going with storytelling and with emotion. One is um, where the story emerges from the systems, like in this war of mine. And so the, the kind of the game play itself tells the story and it emerges from how you interact with the systems, and the systems are designed to convey the meaning. And then there's modular storytelling, which is another approach where I think the the interaction is actually the narrative. Like, you're interacting with these characters, and, and they're telling you parts of the story, and you're learning about the characters, or you're engaging in um, systems that are tied in with that, but it, it's more um, directed from the top. And... The problem with putting emotion into like AAA games the way we have them now is that AAA games are designed to be really stimulating and get your heart racing and like get adrenaline flowing through your through your body and that's not a very interesting story. If you have game mechanics that are designed around other kinds of stimulation like putting you in someone else's shoes or showing you something really beautiful um, a game designed around those kind of different mechanics is naturally going to lend itself better to storytelling as well. I see in AAA, like, guys who came up playing shooters, they love shooters. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then they'll have daughters and think, like, oh, I don't want to make violent games anymore because I want to share this with my daughter because of this weird opinion about daughters not playing shooters or something. And then... They're, like, scrambling around trying to figure out, like, how could a game be interesting without being, like, violent like that. And then they're, but they're still, like, they naturally like shooters. That's why they make them. That's why they come to work in the industry. And so they're trying to, like, make games that are, like, shooting, but then the story and it's disjointed and it doesn't really fit. Because that's not the right kind of person to make a different kind of game. It needs to be someone who likes different things in the first place. Yeah, it's... It's challenging because the the understanding that we have of what makes a game a good game uh, is is based on those those presumptions that it needs to have blood pumping moments. It needs to be about fight or flight, and it needs to be all of these things. And we're starting to see a break between these concepts. But as as Brie pointed out. Um, it needs more people who are going to um, challenge these concepts and try to see where where that breaks 
in order to create those experiences. Why do you think that break is happening right now? Is because games are there's more games without the violence showing up, or like some games are being more successful? Yeah, I think it's because people with different interests now have access to the medium and can develop games and <clears throat> and experiment with different things. That's what makes me really passionate about the indie game development is it's a different type of risk than what we do with big studios and and the limitations that come with that and that allows them some freedom to to do passion projects essentially and kind of throw out some of the concept that don't fit with that passion and try something new and then from there we realize that maybe what we think makes a good game isn't what actually makes a good game and that there's leeway there to do other things than fight or flight. Yes, exactly. The, the affordability of the tools now, the accessibility of the tools now, like it just, it's a wider range of people able to experiment with things. Um, and then they're, if they're naturally interested in other things, they're naturally going to make other things. Um, where I think is going to take time is that people who are coming in without a background understanding in game design theory will naturally make the things that are better, but there won't be a theoretical framework around that for a while because the money in, in game design research, like at least in industry in AAA, is based on samples of gamers. It's based on frameworks around traditional types of stimulation in games. So that will take more time. Yeah, and in, in the free-to-play market, the money in the research is all about uh, keeping players playing longer and looking at what motivates players to spend that extra money and all of that. So, Like, like in the short term, like really about mm. like short-term decisions. Emily, you mentioned free-to-play. Does a game being free-to-play affect the storytelling at all? Being free to play kind of affects everything about the game. Um, it, it's going to change the structure based on that business model. And the nature of free to play actually steers us a little bit more towards modular storytelling because like on The Sims Free Play, we're releasing an update every six weeks. And every update has a new bit of story that needs to fit within that world. So it we don't have as much of a linear stories uh, in, in games like that, or we have a really, really high level one that will never end. The, the RPG games on, on mobile that are free to play, you'll never get, you have a quest of saving the world, but you'll never actually save the world because the game needs to keep going forever. It's really quite beautiful, I think. <laughs> that sounds also like it can be really frustrating for the player. Well, it, it just means that you stop caring. Or the stakes just <laughs> don't, they don't stay high anymore. Exactly. And you know that you'll never get that reward. You can, you can get the satisfaction of winning this battle, this level in front of you, but you'll never get the satisfaction of winning the war. Which is, again, like we're back to themes of, of fight or flight um, <laughs> and battle. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 everywhere. Um, 
But yeah, so that's kind of the nature of, of that medium. There are some free-to-play games that are moving towards more episodic content. And basically you buy additional chapters or things like that, or you can progress faster through chapters using microtransaction. But um, I think we're still experimenting with that, because if anything, the free-to-play model and how it impacts games is newer than anything else we've been doing already. And since we've been talking about The Sims, what were the challenges you were running into specifically when you were updating the game every three weeks? So The Sims, the Sims Free Play, when I got on board, was already uh, three, four years old. So there was already a bunch of stories and quests and characters in there, which sounds a little weird when we think about The Sims, which is meant to be a sandbox where you create your own stories. But what we realized on mobile is that um, the players playing on mobile needed kind of that guiding hand um, to show them the game, but also to feed their imagination. So the way we were designing quests and stories in The Sims was all about um, introducing new concepts, but also showing new types of stories that could be told in that universe um, to kind of add to the narrative tool that the the players would have to tell their own stories once the quest was over. So every every story that we were telling was really self-contained and meant to do these things in the span of about a week um, of of gameplay. So that was that was part of the challenge. And the other challenges were linked to the cadence of updating something every six weeks um, that left us with a fairly set format of what we could do um, and limited tools that we could use to tell these stories so that it would fit within what the game could actually do. We couldn't reinvent the whole legacy of systems every time we wanted to tell a new story. So were there already three years worth of quests before you came on there? Yeah. Is it a linear progression of like one quest leads to another quest leads to the next quest that comes on? Yes. So when you get started, you have a linear progression of quests that introduce different games features. Um, And when you get past a certain point, you start having optional quests as well. And there are limited time events that sometimes will have story attached to them as well especially for seasonal things like Christmas and events like that. So it's really an ecosystem of different types of quests. And they're not, they're not linked to one another because one of the very important things for us designing stories for Sims is that the player can use any of their Sims to play through a quest. They can use several Sims or go through the quest with one single one. So the story needed to the stories need to leave space um, for players to tackle the quests the way they feel like uh, and kind of add meaning to it. We had an interesting quest at some point about a nanny coming in to introduce new features, um, new interactions with the babies that we have in the game, and some players took it really the wrong way because they felt like they knew how to take care of babies and how dare a nanny come in and think that she could do better. Um, and other players focused just on the new functionality and other players were really keen on the nanny staying full time and being able to have a daycare and it fed and built into their imagination of what the game could do. 
and then they went and used the tool used the tools that they had in game to build their own house slash daycare so it's so cool yeah like it's different interpretations of the same thing and that means letting go of how you think players will interact with that story and just leave them space to do whatever they will with it. Do you know, were the most of the players who came to this game, were they people who had experienced The Sims before or had not? I don't have the stats, but I think if, like a good number of them definitely recognize The Sims brand. And we, we have players who play sims 4 and have played other sims game and would draw comparisons between them the nature of the experience on mobile is quite different from the one on pc it's a little bit more directed it's structured differently which some of the experienced sims player didn't um, identify with but mobile also opened up a demographic that wouldn't play games normally. So a fair amount of the people playing The Sims Freeplay also come from just getting used to playing other games on mobile and discovering this new one that was trending. I want to backtrack a bit to talk about emotional engagement. Emily, you gave a talk a while back about the emotional aspects of engagement and how E equals MC squared is a matrix to structure discussions about it. Mm. Uh, What are the emotional triggers that create engagement? Um, so to me, I broke it down. The E equals MC square is engagement is equal to motivation multiplied by control. So I I heard a lot of people saying, um, to me when I'm designing games, especially in free to play, we want players to engage with our product. We want, um, or we want team members to engage with what we're doing. And to me, it always sounded like someone saying, I want you to love me. That's not how it works. <laughs> um, it's it's a relationship. It it has pressure points, if that makes sense. And when I looked into what what makes me and makes other people engage with content, genuinely engage, it comes from being able to take some ownership of it and being motivated to do that in some way. Uh, and yeah. we can see that in cosplay. It's a way for people to to make their own a part of something they're they're really invested in and interested in, um, and that makes them even more invested in that story because they own a part of it. So it's yeah. it's how I broke it down in in my mind and tried to apply it and think of. Thinking of it in terms of of games, um, we see it with you know reactions in the games community. How much because players have agency within the game world, um, oh. they feel like the game somehow belongs to them, and in some ways it does. And the flip side of that is if a game doesn't. Uh, make them feel like it belongs to them if the controls aren't working and they can't do what they want to do with the game. um, They're going to disengage from it. And the same goes with you being satisfied with your work and whether or not you want to keep doing your job is do you feel like it's your job and do you feel like you can do it in that sense of, of your sandbox and the things you're allowed to experiment with. And then 
being self-motivated to experience, uh, to experiment with these things, um, but also being rewarded for doing that so that it feeds into your motivation. That's part of, you know, basic game design principle of how you get a player to keep playing. But it's also part of team management. You can have the most motivated and skilled employee coming in if you never let them do the job that they can do um, at the skill level that they have and you never thank them for it, they're going to look somewhere else. That's interesting. It's like the nature of the medium itself um, is leading towards games as a service rather than sequels because it's too easy to deliver something that the players don't like when you're making something that's like very um, like the ending to Mass Effect 3 um, but if you have a game world that's persistent and, and exists and then you're developing the game in concert with the community then it's, it's more likely that the community will be satisfied with what you're making um, mm. and because the games are interactive, players feel like they have more ownership over it. I never thought of it that way. That's really interesting. Um, it makes me think of the original Sims, like in 2000 or whenever, yeah. 2001, um, when this whole community sprung up on the internet around the Sims of people making um, outfits and furniture for the Sims. And, and then, um, from what I understand... I think that EA ended up hiring a lot of those people to, to get them to stop making this stuff. But I th always thought it would be more interesting if the game had, like, absorbed into it that, like, a game loop in the game was making this stuff in the game and selling it to other people. And then the game could become about that outside community as well. Yeah, it's a lot of, of what games... I think Second Sight did a version of that where you had players running their own stores and, and selling stuff within the game world and... Yeah, it's including your community and, and what you say totally makes sense of making that part of what the game is, whether it's part of the development or part of the actual game mechanics so that it's, it's a relationship. And it actually gives you a lot more leeway um, in producing the game as well and being partners with, with your community. It's, it's creatively interesting because um, you get a whole bunch of ideas that you may never have thought about. And Brie, are there any other emotional triggers besides what Emily said that engage you? Like, I really like that moment where you realize that something is way more... When you realize there's something more to the game than what you thought. Like, you, like in this war of mine, when I came home and the other players, or the other characters, the NPCs in my game were like, we can't believe you did that, and you stole from them. And I, I didn't realize they were going to have that system in the game, and it was like, oh, this is great. Or like, when I was playing Skyrim, I finished the main quest first because it felt really pressing. Like, I, I felt like I couldn't, you know, pick flowers while dragons were attacking the world. Um, and so I'd finished the main quest, and I'd finished most of the guilds, and then at some point... I was, like, by accident, ended up very far west and discovered, like, that whole other city over there that somehow the main quest and the other quests I'd done so far just had never brought me to that city, and I'd missed it on the map, and, like, I hadn't noticed it on the paper map that came with Skyrim. And I was like, oh, my God, like, how big is this game? Like, are there other cities? Like, what? <laughs> and, and then there's, like, all these other characters and whole world to explore. 
Um, so that's another thing for me, like just personally, like when, when there's like this kind of like the beauty of like thinking that you understood something and then this like, like eureka moment where you realize that like you understood nothing. Yeah, the game lets you discover that it's not going out of its way to push it in front of you. Right, yeah. I love, like, was it the beginning of Oblivion when you finish the, the tutorial and you come out of the tunnel and then you have to walk west and it just happens to be sunset? Yeah. It's, like, so amazing. So, yeah. Were you going to say something, Emily? I was just going to say that it's, it's basically good when the game rewards you for doing what you're doing, whether you're following the beaten path, path or experimenting with something. And it acknowledges that you've done it <laughs> and, and gives you something for it. Um, so whether it's that reaction when going back home in this war of mine or I ended up exploring this way and look, there's a thing. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than trying something and in, in hitting that dead end. So that's, that's also part of what keeps me motivated in, in working in a game is I can, I can push those boundaries and experiment with stuff. And it acknowledges that and rewards me for it in some way, whether that's a new bit of story or a new moment of wonderment watching the world unfold. Since Priya had been talking about games as, setting up games as services, mm-hmm. the change that's coming right now, and we talked about this yesterday, but for both of you, do you think there's too much pressure on conclusions in games? And thinking about it in terms of not enough people actually finish the games they play and would it be better to devote those resources to leaving leaving games more open-ended so that it's more of... I think it depends on the player type. Like, different people look for different things in games and I think the best example to describe kind of the basic player types is is The Sims also. Like, there's people who play the sims by trying to break the systems and seeing what happens like putting someone in a swimming pool and then removing the ladder there's people who play the sims by like cheating and building the best house they can there's people who play the sims by like trying to like maximize like all the careers and stuff and like like do the best and there's people who play the sims by like playing dolls and, and coming up with stories and like creating their friends in the game and like like laughing when funny things happen or setting up, you know, making stories. So, um, like, when I play Skyrim, I would prefer if there was no main quest because it, it annoys me. Like, the main quest is so pressing and then I feel like I have to do it because how how could I do anything else while well, there's this major calamity in the world? But then once that's done, then I really enjoy the game. But other people need that to pull them forward because they're they're this kind of player that needs to feel like they're moving linearly towards something that they're accomplishing. Mm-hmm. It's like different solutions for different people. Yeah, and I think there's there's a place for different things because most of the games that people don't finish are those really sprawling, complex world that will need hours and hours of gameplay um, for you to get through it. But there are also shorter experiences that you can have the full story um, within a couple of hours, three hours of playing the game, which I would wager people are more likely to finish. And I think there is room for both um, in, in the games that we're consuming. And it's just that one has predominance right now and the nature of the costs of developing on consoles and all of that 
um, and the marketing that goes behind these games mean that they need to deliver a certain amount of content to remain competitive. And that's where indie games don't have that demand and can play with the format a little bit and do something that is shorter and fulfilling a different way. And different players are going to be drawn to different things, like Brie eloquently said. Winding down a bit, so I want to ask before we get there, um, Emily, since you have been a teacher for storytelling, um, what topics or concepts do you see as essential when teaching about storytelling in games? So most of my students um, were people studying to be game designers, um, and some of them didn't see the worth of stories. And a lot of the classes were about the basics of storytelling, um, but also showing how story has context and meaning. It's much more interesting for me to be killing dragons if it's a calamity on the world, and I know why... I'm doing this thing. Um, and it's a dragon. It's not a blue square. Um, and and there's, there's meaning for me um, in there and justifying my actions. One of the, the key things in general, I think, with storytelling in games versus linear storytelling is getting comfortable with giving space to the audience. So in... In storytelling in general, what you say is as important as what you choose not to say so that you don't overload the reader, for example, with too much informa information that doesn't matter. Um, in games, that's kind of turned up a notch of you actually need to consider that negative space of the things that you don't say because that's where the player exists. And that part of the experience, that part of where they can make choices or interpret what you put in front of them um, in the way that they see fit is as important as the story that you're actually telling. Why didn't those people think storytelling was important? It, I think it was for a, a variety of reasons. I hear it all the time that people don't read um, and people you know, don't pay attention to stories. And some players may be more interested about the competitive aspect or just getting into the systems and the mechanics, and they should be able to do that. But I think everyone needs that bit of context. Even if you're just doing shooters to playing shooters to play shooters, um, and you don't care about the story wrapped around it, you do care about your avatar and the world around you that you're playing that shooter in. You still need that bit of context, and it matters, even if it's a very light environmental storytelling that just sets an atmosphere. But for them, what mattered more in a game was solely the systems and the mechanics. They didn't perceive that that wrapping needed love and care as well. And I think, again, it comes down to who is defining these rules around games, who's working in the games industry, who's teaching it, who was playing the games that they grew up playing that were already like that. And I can talk more about that after GDC. I'll have you back on again. <laughs> to both of you, has what you respond to and are looking for in a game narrative changed over the years? And what are you looking for now? 
I'm looking for more of more variety in experiences, I guess, is the, the quick way to say it. Sometimes what I want to do is go play a big, sprawling hero's quest in an, an open world. Um, and sometimes what I want to do is have a more intimate experience with a game that is going to tackle a more challenging subject for me. Uh, and I think, I think the more games can show that they can deliver on that variety of emotional experiences, that's what makes art, is, is the ability to convey everything, <laughs> everything that you could want to convey um, mm -hmm. in a way that is going to touch your audience. Um, and the more I see games expand their repertoire of what they're conveying, uh, the more I love them. I'm thinking in terms of what games have really touched me in my life and why haven't I felt that anymore as often now. Um, and the, I think my biggest experience with a game was when I played Morrowind after university. After university, I had like a panic. I didn't want to be a programmer, but I had a programming degree, whoops. And then um, I didn't work for a while. And then I went to Europe, like hoping that like being outside of my own city where I'd never traveled. And I thought that that would give me some perspective and help me understand what, what I wanted out of life and what kind of person I wanted to be. But it turns out that trip didn't really do much for me because I'm really shy and I didn't meet anyone. I just walked around Paris by myself a lot. And then, so when I came back from that trip, like, without any intention, just, like, my boyfriend had Morrowind on his PC and he used to sleep in, so I used to play it all day while he slept. Um, and in Morrowind, I, that's really where I grew up, like, that period after. Um, because I, I, like, in that kind of world and in that social setting, I figured out who I wanted to be. Um, and learned a lot about myself. And play is how we naturally learn. Um, it's not necessarily how we teach in schools, but it's, it, the, I mean, that's why animals play. And after I've attended this think tank and after I've been doing all this research with my company about what games can be, I think that, like, I want to play games where I can develop um, as a person, where I can learn about what I'm good at and, and work on becoming better at it. Um, it. Whether that means like how I relate to characters in the game or like solving a puzzle or a mystery in the game or something, but I want these deep, rich experiences that help me develop myself as a person, which is, I think, similar to what Emily was saying too. Yeah, anything, anything that makes me grow works well. Um, I'm really curious to see games cross over to concrete technical skills as well and, and teaching in general. Um, yeah. I think there's, like Brie mentioned, we learn through play. And I think there's a lot of, of room to grow there and we're seeing more and more of it and interesting concepts of using game theory and applying it to to learning and and growing in a very in a very concrete skills that I can use to get work or, or yeah, in that concrete yeah. way. There's, there's interesting work being done in educational games now. Like, I think for a long time, educational games was like, I remember when I was a kid and there was like a typing game, but it's like 
the typing is what it makes you do in yeah. between rewards. But now there's like really interesting stuff with educational games where the the learning of the thing is the fun part. Do you give an example? Well, it's plugging a friend, but my my friend, um, actually my old boss, he was a great boss, John Krajewski, um, he has a company he's making a game called Eco, and it, it's teaching like um, about the environment and systems thinking to kids through the game. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. We'll link it in the show notes. I also, I remember seeing a talk at a gamification summit years ago from a teacher in the States who runs his math class using Monopoly to teach statistics. And like, it's a very advanced take on math, but because it's taught through Monopoly, everyone wants to be in his class. And he was talking about how students who used to have a hard time at math and weren't motivated um, to learn started working really hard so that they could get into his class. And then they would learn statistics and advanced math through playing Monopoly and using that to make choices that would lead to winning at Monopoly, which I thought was really, really interesting, both from creating that motivation and using the core of the game mechanics as the teaching. Is it Finland or Norway right now that switched their whole school system is going to be like purpose-driven projects. So they don't have subjects anymore. They have like, they have like this semester we're learning, like we have this goal. And then they have to learn all the things that you would use to get to that goal. So it's like all cross, cross subject, cross disciplinary yeah. like learning. And it, it, Emily reminds me of that. Like if, if, I mean, the reason that school is not fun unless like I found it fun because I like actually just like the act of learning but if 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 you're not just interested in math for some abstract reason then school is really boring because you don't have a purpose and it's it's one of those things that you know in games it's really obvious that if i just tell the player to hit a rock a hundred times in and of itself that's not going to work if there's a purpose and there's a reason that's going to give them a better sword or whatever goal they're chasing within the game going to make them care about this thing that they have to do and it's it's a very basic principle of of having agency and because right. you take ownership of that goal and that purpose um, and how you go about tackling it you're more engaged into fulfilling it there's so much potential there yeah that's a good note to end on though <laughs> so emily and brie where can people find you on the internet um, on Twitter, I'm Bree Code, B-R-I-E-C-O-D-E. And my company is True Love Media, T-R-U-L-U-V-M-E-D-I-A. And I'm also on Twitter as Ahela, so A-H-E-I-L-A underscore. And my company is Burning Glass Creative. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at ScriptBlockCast. And if you like this show, please leave an iTunes review. We don't do any marketing as, as the best way for us to get new people to listen to it. But thank you, too, for coming on again. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 